Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Luke. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. I left one prayer request out, and that's for Pastor Ben and Danielle. They're on vacation this week, and um, they always have this 4th of July big thing to get together with their family, so they're off enjoying that time, so we'll be praying for them. I'm going to leave the lights off for a second because I want to show you some pictures. Uh, matter of fact, um, let's go and throw that first picture up there. I won't, I'm not going to have you guess yet where that is, but I want you to think back about 14 years ago. Uh, this is the year 2000, summer 2000. There was a group of about 20 flatland naive Buckeyes prepared themselves to climb that mountain. That is Mount Rainier, tallest mountain in the continental United States in the state of Washington, rises above the clouds in elevation of 14,400 and something feet, uh, some odd feet, 10 maybe. Um, now, here's what I want you to know as I start this message this morning. Some of you are like, I've heard that story. Awesome. Okay. And then when we open up the Luke, you're going to say, I've heard that story. Awesome. This is, like a, this is like my Christmas story. When you get to Christmas, I wonder what we're going to talk about at church. Hmm. Or sort of like Easter. I wonder what we're going to talk about at church. Okay. This is my summer story. Okay. And sort of my intro to our, new, our theme, All In, and we'll get into that in a second. But I want to share this story with you because I can't think of a better story that helps illustrate what I want you to know about God's truth today. Okay? So, summer of 2000, and we're going to the next one. Uh, these are just some different views of Mount Rainier um, out in the state of Washington. And let's go one more. And right there, thank you. That uh, was our starting point. When we started off, uh, we had to have a day of, we call it uh, altitude adjustment. You know, some of you parents, you have your kids, you call them attitude adjustments, okay? We had to have an altitude adjustment. And that's mainly um, because we started off uh, camping at 3,400 feet, and then we hiked at 5,400 feet, which is the starting point right here. And we're going to go up to an elevation of a little over 10,000 feet. Now, the summit, like I said, is 14,410. We cannot summit without different things called crampons and other climbing equipment that helps you with ice picks get to the summit. So we would go to an elevation of 10,000 feet, which was Camp Muir. That was our goal, okay? So this is our starting point. This is parking lot of what's called Paradise. So go ahead, and Dan, as you, we go through this, it's, this is how it starts, a little paved path. Doesn't that look nice? It looks really fun. For those of you who like to hike or climb, it's like, I can climb in here. Look at that, you know. Scooter take up that. That'd be fun, right? That's how it starts. Now, understand, we, we got all of our gear around because we knew we'd have some obstacles along the way. Okay, first of all was the altitude adjustment. That is a big change. For that reason, altitude sickness was going to happen. Okay? Even, even the, the, those that's like, oh, it won't happen to me, it will happen to you. Unless you have adjusted and been out there a few days and hiked around, okay? Dehydration at a higher altitude. You don't need to exert yourself to dehydrate. You can just be standing here. I can just stand here and talk to you for about five minutes, and I will be dehydrated at that altitude. So you always have to hydrate, drink a lot of water. And some of our supplies, we're getting a little empty. Now the sun is going to be an issue too. I'm going to go to the next one. As we start going, oh, what happened to the paved trail? It's no longer there. But at least we got, now we've got rocks. Little, you see the little rock formations. That was good. That was very helpful. Okay, I'm going to the next one. And uh, from when you start getting up this and you start looking out, the view's incredible. 
How many of you, and you don't raise your hands on this, but how many of you, you've gone on vacation, you're taking pictures of, of nature, whether it's trees, mountains, oceans, and you're like, take, take, oh, you take about 200 pictures, and you get home, it's like, oh, there's another picture of a mountain, and another mountain, and, and then nothing does justice like being there, right? Because at the moment when you're taking pictures, it's like, oh, I'm capturing the moment, capturing the moment. You get home, you captured a lot of photographs, but nothing like being there. And I'm telling you, there's nothing like being there and looking out. Okay, and go to the next one. Obviously, this climb gets a little bit steeper. It gets a little more rugged. Go to the next one. And, but the view keeps getting better. All right, next one. And we, every now and then, it's like, let's just stop and enjoy. Many of you know Scott Smith. That's Scott perched up on a rock there, and we were enjoying that moment. And this was one of the rock ledges where we stopped at. Now, this is a key picture, so remember the rock ledge. Okay, everybody remember the rock ledge. Let that picture soak. At this point in time, the sun is, uh, the rays are coming down. It's uh, pretty dangerous, increased intensity. Matter of fact, if you don't have sunglasses, you have the danger of burning your retinas. Um, and matter of fact, as we were climbing up, there were some people coming down, and one of the girls on our team did not have sunglasses. And the guy coming down saw that, and right away he just took his off his face and said, girl, you need this more than I do. I'm heading down. I'll be out of this in, in about an hour. You're heading up. You need this. And he just... He understood the danger of the intensity of the sun at that high altitude. Um, go ahead and go to the next one. And then we got into something different called snow. This was, again, this was during uh, the month late into June into July. We had a snowball fight in July. It was a blast, okay? But there's the snow. And the thing about snow is the last four hours of a seven-hour climb was through a snow field. When you're walking through this kind of snow at that kind of altitude, it's like walking through mashed potatoes. It's like taking two steps forward, but you're still taking one step back. It's just a different feel as you walk. And as you can see, we started making a trail to walk through because of the depth of the snow uh, and the intensity of it and stepping through it. Let's go to the next one. That gives you a better picture of that snow field. Now, when we were at the rock ledge, we looked up and we said, yes, we're almost to Camp Muir. It's got to be above this next rim. We'll get up there and Camp Muir is probably not too much further above. Matter of fact, as I was walking, um, hiking, uh, we sort of split some of us were at the rock ledge and a few taken off. And we had somebody that was up on the top um, waving. Uh, and they were all excited. And we're like, yes, this is it. Well, when we got up there, what they were doing was it wasn't we're there. It was going to go to the next one. There's a lot more to go. There's more to go. Yeah. And so that was sort of disheartening. I thought I was close. This was probably still an elevation, probably about eight or 9,000 feet. So we still had more to go. Because at that point in time, a young man in front of me by the name of Matt Sauter was hiking. And in front of me, I kept hearing him say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I needed that. That was awesome to hear a young man quoting scripture in front of me. Okay, and then we'll go to the next one. This is Camp Muir. This was our arrival, our destination that we worked so hard to get. You can see the depth of the snow. It was exciting because if you know to look up in the top right there, that little shack up there, that's called a porta pot. First time we've seen in seven hours. Um, there was a lot going on there as far as the obstacles but, and all that we had to face in going up there. But let's not forget our final destination, which was Camp Muir. You can go one more picture, Dan. And from there, from Camp Muir, is if we could see the world. Um, and by the way, this Mount Rainier is an active volcano. A lot of people don't know that. If Mount Rainier ever decides to erupt, Seattle will probably not be around. Um, 
most people don't know that. And it's like, what are you climbing? Well, it was there. So we climbed it. Um, but as you look out throughout the Cascade Mountain Range, uh, which does include Mount St. Helens and a few other incredible mountains, um, it, it, was, it was incredible. It, it, was an, it was an adventurous story. And there's more to tell about it. I, you know, our trip down was even more adventurous, and that's another story for another day. Okay? Um, but we'll go ahead and turn the lights on, and we can take the picture off there. But that's, that's, that's the thing. But here's the deal. 17 out of 20 of us made it to Camp Muir. Okay? 17 out of 20 of us made it there. Three people did not. Two people stayed at the rock field. Remember the rock ledge? Two people stayed there. One person never left paradise down in the parking lot. They hyperventilated. I can't do it. You know, we tried to talk them into it. They got too excited, too nervous to even take one foot on that paved path. And they stayed there. Two people got to the rock ledge and said, this is good enough. We can see, we can see it's a nice view from here. This is good enough. Our legs are tired. My knees hurt. I am done. 17, the rest of us went up the rest of the way and completed our task. Now, that's my story, okay? Now, it's in your Bibles. If you're at a book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. Here's story number two I want you to hear. Again, it's one of my favorite parables and stories in the Bible that Jesus tells. He told three stories. First, he told a story about a lost sheep. Then he told a story about a lost coin. Then he told a story about a lost son. And let's read this to give you some background. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And again, this is something you don't do. You wait till dad passes away before he gives you the estate. But here's his son coming up to dad saying, I want my share now. Pretty selfish. Okay? Pretty greedy. But the fathers agree. Here you go. So a few days later, his younger son packs all of his belongings, took a trip to a distant land. There he wasted all of his money on wild living. He partied it up. Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. Listen to this. This is how desperate he becomes. The boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. How hungry can you be when you're feeding the pigs and that looks just as good as what you had back at home? That's not good, okay? I grew up on a farm. We fed hundreds of pigs. I did not like it. That was my daily chore, feeding and cleaning the pens every day. I did not like pigs. I did not look at the food the pigs ate and say, boy, that's better than the oatmeal mom makes. That, no, that didn't happen. This is how hungry he is. I want you to see how desperate he is. What, what um, sort of takes me back here is the next sentence. But no one gave him anything. Now, does that mean the farmer didn't feed him? Does that mean the pigs wouldn't share their food? I don't know, but he's desperate because he has nothing. Verse 17, this is a key verse. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, 
I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Listen to this. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead, is now returned to life. He was lost, but he is now found. So the party began. That's a great story. Go back and read it again if you have to. That is a great story. A very selfish, pompous, greedy boy can't wait for dad to die ask for the estate, gets the money, goes off, parties it up, lives a wild life, and then comes back and realizes he's, after he spent it all, he has nothing left. Nothing at all. So he comes to his senses and he says, you know what? Even the servants that work for my dad have it better than this. I'll go back. Here's my plan. Dad, I'm sorry I sinned against you in heaven. Would you make me a hired servant? That's all I'm asking for. I don't even, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. A hired servant, that's all. So he goes home, very humbled, very low. And as he's walking home, dad's waiting at the end of the house, looking down that road, sees his son, and he runs. Dads never run to their children, by the way, in biblical times. No, no, no. Children should be running to their dad, but dad runs to his child and embraces him. That you don't do either, but he did. And then he got a robe a sign of so, showing sonship, a special thing. And then he got a ring for his finger and placed it on again. He got sandals for his feet. Nobody wears sandals in the house unless you belong in the house. If you're a servant, you're barefoot. When I was looking at this story, this incredible story, and then I was thinking of the story of climbing uh, Mount Rainier, here's what I want you to picture with me, would you please? If you could picture... You know, if you just take a, di a piece of paper and diagram this, just draw like a mountain, okay? And at the top, you would write Camp Muir. Halfway down, you'd write the Rock Ledge. And at the bottom, you'd write Paradise, because that's where we started. It was the bottom. Rock Ledge was good enough for some people. And then you had our destination, Camp Muir. Now, I want you to picture this. Up here where it says Camp Muir, you write Father's Home. And where it says Rock Ledge, you write Servant's Home. And then where Paradise, you write Pig Pen. Now here's the correlation. Those are two stories. Now here's where you write your story. See, a lot of us are satisfied with the pig pen in life. I'm okay where I'm at. It's about me, my choices, okay? I, I, I'm going to go live however I want to live. In disobedience, selfishness, whatever it may be, nobody's going to tell me how to run my show. This is the way I'm doing it, okay? That's called the pig pen of life. The son found himself there, and it wasn't a good place. While living, partying up, he found rock bottom. This is where one of our team members stayed. They didn't want to climb uh, Mount Rainier. They just sort of stood there and just looked up. This, this is all I'm going right here. And then we have the rock ledge. The rock ledge is where two of our team members sat there and said, this is good enough for me. I'm okay with this. I'm not going to exert myself to go any higher. I'm okay right here. I'm tired. That was where the son said, 
The servant's quarters is good enough for me. I want to get out of the pig pen, but I'm not worthy to be in the father's home. You know what's good enough for me? Just being a servant. Average life, good enough for me. And then you have Camp Muir, destination. We have the father's home. That's where we were created to be. That's our goal. Now, you've got that diagram in your mind. I want you to think about this, okay? And let's do this. Let's admit something right here. Let's admit right now that we're not all where we need to be. In our lives, as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of one true Lord and Savior, our goal is to grow spiritually in life, to grow closer to the Savior. And so as we ascend on our journey, sometimes we find ourselves taking a step down and two steps forward and a step back and two steps forward. But here's what we often find a lot of times. Is a lot of people like, I'm just living it up and not doing very well, and we end up in the pig pen of life. And there's others of us who are like, you know what, I'm okay with where I'm at right now. I'm content with going on church on occasion, reading my Bible every now and then, praying only when I have to. That rock ledge, that average Christian life is okay with me. Jesus called it being lukewarm, by the way. Look in the book of Revelation. You're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Because of that, I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's not a good place to be, by the way. Or we have the Father's home our destination where we need to be living for Christ, where he's called us to be a holy life, a different life. So let me ask you this, where are you at on your journey? If we took those two stories and put them together and put them on that little picture of that mountain, where are you at? That's a question you need to answer right now. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I'm not going to have you stand up and say, well, right now I'm, you know, this isn't a small group activity. This is right now, this is an opportunity for you to stop right now and ask, where am I at on my journey? How am I doing? Because when we're in the pig pens of life, we forget about God. He's out of sight. He's out of focus. It's all about ourselves. We, we need to not be there. I'll tell you that right now. It's not a good place to be. And then there's some of us, you know, we've got our Bibles. Like I said, we go to church and we're on our journey and we sort of stop at the rock ledge and say, that's good enough. I don't need to exert myself. I don't need to do anything in serving. I don't need to give abundantly. I don't need to go be the church. I can just do stuff here and there. Okay, well, it's a good start, but again, that's not where you were created to be. Look at verse 17 with me again, would you please? Verse 17 of Luke chapter 15. When he came to his senses, let me hear you say he came to his senses. When he came to his, uh, his senses, let me, let me do it another way. Let me hear you say, he woke up. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, we sort of get daydreaming in life. Sometimes we sort of like, we're sort of cruising along. All of a sudden it's like, oh, I had that awakening moment, you know. It's, wow, it just finally hit me. That's what happened, okay. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The son was so content with living in the servant's home. Listen to that sentence. The son was content with living in the servant's home. We should have a problem with that sentence. Because that's average living. That's not where he belongs. Where does the son belong? In the father's home. Let me hear you say the father's home. Now let me ask you the question, where does the son belong? Does the son belong in the pig pen? No. Does the son belong in the servant's home? Where does the son belong? In the father's home. 
That's where he belongs. That's where we belong. But too many of us are satisfied with living a satisfactory average life instead of a vibrant relationship with God. So my question to you again is, where are you? As sons and daughters, where are you? Are you satisfied with being in the servant's home or are you in the father's home? Where are you at in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you understand that God loves us? Our Heavenly Father desires for us to be in His home. To me, that's incredible. Do we truly understand God's incredible power, might, love, His indescribable attributes? Dan's going to throw some scriptures up here. There's about five of them, I believe, maybe six. Uh, I'm going to read them to you real quick. Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The answer to that is no one. First Chronicles 29, 12 says, Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Who can do that? Only God. Jeremiah 10, 6. No one is like you, O Lord. Let me hear, let me hear you say, no one is like you, O Lord. Isn't that incredible? You know, Jeremiah says this, nobody. You are great. Your name is mighty in power. No one is like you, O Lord. Let's see, who's like God? The answer is no one, no one, no one. Jeremiah 27, 5, he says this, With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it. I give it to anyone I please. That's God speaking. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Here's the deal. He is God and God alone. He is there. He is almighty. He's indescribable. He's a creator. And he has this place, his home, his heavenly realms. And he says, you are my children. You belong here with me. Not living a average, half-hearted, uncommitted life. Not living in the pig pens of life. As my child, you're here. This is where you belong. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse... Two, we understand this, that when in the beginning God created, right? But check out what he created. Let's do this. Let me hear you say day one. On day one, God said, let there be light, and there was light. We always like that one. We always walk in a room, let there be light. And we jokingly turn on the light, right? God did it for real on day one. God saw the light, and he said it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day. He called the darkness night. That's day one. Let me hear you say day two. Day two comes along, God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens and the waters on the earth. He called that space sky. Let me hear you say day three. God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow from one place and ground may appear over here. So God called the dry ground land. He called the water seas. God saw that it was good. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, trees, seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. God saw it was good. Let me hear you say day four. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, the days, the years. God made two great lights, the sun and the moon. He made the stars, and he saw it was good. Let me hear you say day five. This is where it gets real fun. Then God said, let the water swarm with fish and other life. It's dolphins, sharks, whales, goldfish, 
Nemo. Okay? Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. God created sea creatures and everything that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird producing offspring of the same kind. He saw it was good. Day six. Let me hear you say day six. Then God said, let earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry on the ground, wild animals. And God saw it was good. Then in verse 26 of chapter 1, we've gone through six days of creation, and on that sixth day, God says, all right, let's now make human beings in our image. This is where let's understand that the Trinity is so real, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because as God's speaking, he's speaking in the Trinity here. Let us make man in our image to be like us. They'll reign over fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, small animals that scurry on the ground. Verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God looked over all he made and he said it was very good. Let me hear you say very good. Because up to this point in time, it's been good. It was good, 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 okay? Six great days here, but God said it was good. And then after he created man and woman, he said, very good. He looked over everything he created. Oh, this is so good, this is so good. But then he looks at all, and then he looks at man that he creates, and he says, very good. <laughs> this is better than average. This is very good. He didn't create us and say, oh, man, you're good. No, he said, you're very good. And that's why I believe one of our greatest opponents in life is not sports. It's not opposition at work. I believe one of our greatest opponents, besides the devil himself, is being average. When we settle for being average, we're settled for just being good enough. And God said, I didn't create you that way. Why are you acting that way? We have value. Repeat after me, I have value. Look at the person next to you and say, you have value. You know, it's just like the kids when they're up here with those ball cards. They're always trying to find something with value. Go look in the mirror. There's value. Problem is, we don't do that anymore. We look at people and we find fault before we find value. We look at ourselves, we find fault before we find value. We have value not because of a medal, not because of a certificate, not because of a ring or a title or a boyfriend or girlfriend or money. That does not give you value. We have value because we were created by God. We are created in His image. Therefore, you have value. With this truth in mind, this is what I want you to know, because this is biblical truth. With this truth in mind, it's time for us to stop living beyond the servant's home. Get out of the servant's house. Move home. You are God's child. It's time to start living like His child. Not in a pig pen, not in a servant's home but in a vibrant relationship in his home. You have value. You're incredibly blessed. Value is not based on performance. It's based on God's love for us and creating us. Before you go to work, before you go to school and take a test, before you go out and play a sport, whatever the outcome is, I didn't do well at work today. I'm, I'm, I think I got written up. You know what? I didn't do well in my school work today. I didn't make that basket. I didn't, I didn't get the hit. Guess what? That does not give you value. You have value before you started and you have value after you finish because of who you are in Jesus Christ. How does God see us? With incredible value. This whole series that we're doing called All In, it's a term you're going to hear a lot in sports. Matter of fact, with FIFA, the World Cup going on, 
Are you in? Yeah, we're all in. We're all in. Everybody's fully committed, fully excited. We're all in. Here's what I want you to know. God is all in with you. God is all in. He holds nothing back. God is all in. He's fully committed to you. Think about this. Through his creation, he created you and I with value. Starting from the book of Genesis, now start going through the Bible and see how God is all in. Matter of fact, let's fast forward to John 3, 16. For God so loved what? Now put your name in there. For God so loved... Uh, some of you didn't want to say your name. I heard Steve say it. I want to hear everybody say it. I want you to put your name in there. Ready? Here we go. For God so loved... Awesome. Awesome. See, God's all in. When you read that verse, for God so loved the world, put your name in there. He loves you. He created you with value. He loves you immensely. In Ephesians 2.10, we know this, that God is all in and giving us purpose. For he created us with purpose. For you are God's workmanship, created to do good things. God says, I'm all in in creating you. I'm all in in loving you. I'm all in in giving you purpose. I'm all in. I want you to hear that this morning because too many of us have walked around with our heads down with listening to lies about I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not like so-and-so, good. I'm glad you're not like so-and-so because then we'd have a bunch of look-alike so-and-sos and that's not good. God created you individually, unique and wonderfully made. And that's good stuff. God's shown us continually through his commitment from the beginning of time when Adam and Eve first sinned. Did God give up on us? No. He remained committed. Oh, you messed up. All right, I'm so, I'm so committed to this human race that I created. To Abraham and God's pr promise for many nations to come from him, to sending his son Jesus Christ to walk here among earth with us and to die for us to give up his life. That's incredible ultimate commitment right there. But listen, if Christianity was primarily about our commitment to God, we would fail miserably because we're imperfect. True? Christianity is not about our commitment to God, by the way. It's about his commitment to us. He's all in. That's part of it. We'll talk about the other three parts over the next three weeks. You know, when we promise to commit to do better, I'm not going to sin this time. Guess what? We're going we're to sin. We're going to fail miserably. We're going to feel guilty. We're going to repent. We're going to do it again. But thank God that he is more committed to us than we are to him. Amen? Think about that. Now, I recently read about a story about a huge concrete Buddha. It's a big Buddha statue over in Bangkok, Thailand. It was a very huge, ugly Buddha. I don't know if there are handsome Buddhas, but anyway, it was this really huge, concrete, ugly Buddha that sat in the middle of the town. And people would come in and they'd take pictures of the town. And they'd set their stuff down on the statue or maybe they'd be drinking a pop and put their empty can there. They'd set their trash on this big Buddha statue and they'd just leave it there and really disrespecting it. And one day, a, a Buddhist priest from a nearby village said, I'd like to move this statue to my temple if that's okay. So he got permission. So in 1955, and check this out, in 1955, the statue was moved to its new location. Now, there was a variety of things that happened, uh, and nobody knows exactly how it happened on the move, but as they were rigging up all these ropes and pulleys to move this big statue, one of the ropes and pulleys busted, and the statue fell and cracked and damaged the bottom of the Buddha statue. Um, 
as they sort of cleaned up some of this uh, plaster and the cement, the stuff that chipped off, they noticed something inside the statue. So a little curiosity took place, and they chipped away a little bit more and a little bit more. And what they discovered was inside this huge uh, concrete statue was a 9.8-foot-tall golden Buddha statue weighing in at 5.4 long tons. So in U.S. dollars, it was worth estimated over $250 million. Let me ask you something. Had anybody known there was a $250 million golden Buddha statue sitting in the middle of their town, do you think they would have been putting their trash on it? Do you think they would have been taking pictures of the town or pictures of the Buddha statue? Hmm. What does the world say about us today? The world, we often look at each other. We don't see the gold that's on the inside. We don't see the value that God's created on the inside. We look at the outside and we judge. We look at the outside and we treat it like trash. On the outside we see one thing, but on the inside is something more valuable. Something more valuable. David says this in the book of Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me, you saw me before I was born. Do you ever think about this? New moms in here, moms to be. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out in a single, before a single day passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God? They can't even be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. David is sitting there going, I'm solid gold on the inside in God's eyes. Even though the world looks at me and, and laughs and makes fun of me and doesn't treat me with much value or respect, inside I'm solid gold in God's eyes. Please hear that truth this morning. Walk out of here this morning and understand this. God is all in on you. God is all in on you. You are loved. You're loved by the creator of this world. He has fashioned you in such a way that you can't even understand it. You should be able to walk out of here this morning saying, you know what, all those things I was thinking about myself, lie, 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 lie. Here's the truth. I'm wonderfully and complex made in a way that God can only fashion. I'm solid gold on the inside. I'm worth more than $250 million. And even though nobody's going to take a picture of me and they might treat me like trash, that's not who I am. That does not define me. That does not define me. And here's the, here's the thing. If that's who I am, that's who you are, let me ask you this. How are we doing at treating each other with respect and love? Do we treat people next to us as if they're solid gold on the inside? Or do we treat them like an old concrete Buddha statue? How do you treat people around you? Truth is, God's created you in his image. With incredible power, he knit us together. Marvelously pieced us together. Great value. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we sing this last song. As one who's placed uh, his faith in Jesus Christ, I want to be in the Father's home. 
I'm not satisfied with the servants' quarters. I'm not satisfied with the pig pen of life. People, brothers, sisters, listen carefully. First story, climbing Mount Rainier. Second story, the prodigal son. Let's talk about your story this morning. As an incredibly created work of art by God, how are you living this morning? Where are you at on your journey? You do not belong in a pig pen. You do not belong in a servant's quarters. You belong in a father's home. Let's move on this journey towards his home. Let's encourage one another with the truth that God is all in with his love for you. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your word it says, we love because you first loved us. First John 4, 19 says that. We love because you first loved us. There, there's no way I can love my family, my friends, my coworkers. There's no way I can love them without your love first. So God, this morning, all of us in this room, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, we just want to say thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us. From day one when you created all creation, and you said it was good, it was good, but when you created man, he said, no, it was very good. And you had Adam and Eve there. And they messed up because their commitment to you wasn't that great, but yet you remained committed to them and to mankind. Thank you for not giving up on us when we mess up. Thank you for not being uncommitted when we are, tend to be very fickle and uncommitted in how we live. But thank you, Lord, for being committed to us, for being all in. Lord, this morning, that's what we're just going to sit here and smile and celebrate and say, thank you, God. Thank you for being all in. Lord, may that truth just change how we live today and the rest of this week. May that fire us up to realize, you know what, I don't have to settle for thinking about this, about how I think about myself, or how I look at myself. That's, that's, those are lies. Here's the truth. And Lord, knowing that, with all the prayer requests that we had earlier today, help us to go to different people and remind them that they're loved. Lord, I thank you again for this church family. I thank you for the opportunity to worship you. If there's someone here, Lord, this morning that's struggling right now in their relationship, saying, I want to have a relationship with you, but I don't know how, Lord, it just starts right here at the simple prayer. Lord, forgive me for not following you, for not listening to you. Lord, come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Save me from the bad choices that I keep making. Forgive me. Cleanse me, Lord. Clean up all the junk that's going on in my mind and in my heart. Help me to live for you. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Lord, I want to be in your home, not in the servants' quarters, not in the pig pen, not anymore. Help me journey towards you, a vibrant, exciting relationship with you. Love you, Lord. We thank you for this morning. Lead us now as we sing to you. In the name we pray, amen.